Today's episode of the Read More Podcast is brought to you by the Miami Book Fair International. Eight days each November and all year round with writing workshops, author events, and more. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today we're at Miami's Freedom Tower, and it's a very special day for us because we're welcoming back our first ever guest on the show, Ed Weijdantika. Ed Weij has written several award-winning books, including Brother, I'm Dying, a National Book Critics Circle Award winner and a National Book Award finalist, and The Farming of Bones, an American Book Award winner. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, or Genius Grant. Ed Weij, thank you so much for coming by to talk to us today about your work. Thank you for having me. Your latest book, The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story, is part craft book, but also part memoir and a loving tribute to your mom as you describe what it was like to watch her die of cancer in 2014. In the introduction you write, I am writing this book to learn or relearn how one writes about death so I can write or continue to write about the deaths that have most touched my life, including most recently my mother's. What was it like for you to sit down and write something that was so personal? Um, You know, I'm used to writing personal narratives. Uh, I'm used to going really deep into my own life, my own stories. So that part of it didn't feel unfamiliar to me. I mean, the, the terrain, the structure of the book did, and I welcomed it. I actually sought that out because I didn't want to write a straightforward, um, you know, what some people call memoir, you know, sort of um, memoirs about mothers and particularly mothers who've passed away. So I wanted to write about my mother and I wanted to write about her death right after it happened. But I didn't want to write about it just like my mom died and this is how I feel. So um, I knew about this series that Grey Wolf uh, had and I just thought that this would have been a, this would be a good way to to enter that the narrative through um, writing about my own mother and that experience our experience together at the end of her life and also examining how other writers have written about death and so that form that structure really for me was a way uh, a, the best way at that time of, of approaching that material without and that kept it from also being it was still personal but not um, overly so because my my nerves were so raw my feelings were so new and I was still struggling with them that I think it might have made for a sort of a, a more overwrought book without without the filter of um, criticism and, and craft and, and and the examination of other people's work writers are often told to you know write what you know but death is something that none of us can really know because we haven't experienced it. You touch on this in the book when you talk about how, you know, even those who've experienced near-death experiences, they have not had the more common kind where you don't come back. Do you see death as one of the hardest things to write about? Well, one one of the writers in the book, I think, um, it's Margaret Atwood, says that, you know, death is the is the final, the end of every story, you know, um, whether it's on the page or not, that's the end of the story, but it's still such an unknown. Um, And, you know, people have asked me about, because of the book, they've asked, you know, about when then, what do you think comes after? And, 
and but the process of dying itself is so intriguing I think because we all know ultimately deep inside you know it's the sad reality when the child is born right that we know that that ultimately we're all going to die I mean we come to accept it at different points in our lives but we all know that it's sort of part of our reality and yet it's still so new every time you know every time someone close to us dies it feels like a, a brand new experience um, even if we've lost loved ones before but every time it's it's new so um, I think it's one of those things that is all around is with us all the time but it's it's one of life's great mysteries and of course writers I mean artists are drawn to mysteries and and um, especially ones we know we can never fully solve you know um, and there's been so many attempts you know of at writing about the dying and writing about the dead and and one of the experiences that I've I've found really fascinated was were writers writing about their dying like um, Audre Lorde or Susan Sontag or Christopher Hitchens, you know, people who were aware, more aware of their mortality than we were because they had give, been giving some diagnosis and who are now wrestling with the question of what it is to die. And they have the tools, you know, they have the skills um, because that's that's what they do. They, they're communicators, they're storytellers, and now they're applying them to the, this. So that was also part of what I was interested in exploring in, in the book. Well, you've already given some of the names of the writers whose work that you explore in this book, but that is a big part of it, that you are giving examples of how other authors, such as Toni Morrison or Tolstoy, have written about death. What was the biggest lesson that you learned through all the research you did in writing this book? The biggest lesson was that um, to live the best life you can, and it's an obvious thing. But people who are aware that they're dying, like people who have been given, if you will, an expiration date, really live every moment. And it doesn't always mean like traveling around the world because, you know, often if you're sick, there's a certain extent, there's only so much of that you can do. But, um, and I've seen it now very much up close with both my mother and father who were, give, you know, who were given terminal diagnosis and, and lived some months un after that and really in those in those moments for example my mother at some point there's some shows that she loved you know on television and so she would say you know she didn't want to watch violent things anymore she wanted to watch very peaceful things and then she just really unplugged gradually from different things from different people and really was concentrating on on the most crucial things in her life and that's that was a, a very important lesson that I learned from watching them both is that, of course, as you're dying, your world narrows, you know, and then you really get to see the people who are with you, um, you know, because I remember my father really suffered from that, like he would keep almost a tally of who came <laughs> to see him. And for him, that was a way of really knowing like who had loved him and who Appreciate, and I know there are certain cases where people just there are people who just cannot be in a room with someone they know is dying. Like whether they love you or not, that just it's not possible for them to to take it. So there were people like that in my father's case who just couldn't bring themselves to to come see him. Um, also, he was so physically altered; he had lost so much weight. He was, like, you know, he had a respiratory disease, so he was breathing in a way that would might have been disturbing to them. But um, really, I mean the 
what I did learn is that you you, you focus on the most important things and 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 it's it would be great if we could if we were all able to live like that every day to really you know don't swallow the sweat the small stuff you know just focus on the important things focus on the people you love tell them you love them live the best life you can you know serve if you you know if you if you can do something for others and not just kind of like linger on small unimportant grudges things like that that i that i saw really what's important to you just becomes really big and then the other stuff the the least important stuff just falls away you also write about how you've broached the subject in your work and explain some of the choices you made In the case of your first novel, you say you would change things if you were to write a particular death scene again. Do you often think about ways to change your work from the past, or are you generally done with a book once it's published? Well, in this particular case, you know, when I was talking about certain death scenes I had written, I felt like after both my parents died and a lot of people in my life, you know, older people in my life were close to me, and some younger people who died early. Um, After those experiences, I felt like, you know, I just felt, oh, I was so irresponsible with the way I dispatched, you know, um, death on on my characters. And um, so I, you know, I would rewrite, I feel like I would have been gentler with that. You know, I would have lingered more. You know, life also is about experience. And I think if you're a writer, with everything you write, you grow, and so with every year you live, with every experience you have, you you become, uh, you know. I feel like there's more nuanced in in my life, more nuanced in the work because I've lived some bit more. So when I'm done with a book, initially I think, oh, I'm I'm done, and people sometimes want me to work on translations or they want you to work on other versions of it, other aspects of the book. I and I I'm very reluctant to do that because I spend years on these books it doesn't seem like that sometimes because I publish frequently but it could be years and you're just like I really want to step away from from it but um I you know I tinker when I read out loud when I do a reading I definitely like I take things out um and I like that (laughs) I'm I'm a big believer in revision I do a lot of revising and my I have short stories I have a book of short stories that's um coming out next year hopefully and um, some of the stories go back to like 2007, and I've just been like <laughs> rewriting, rewriting because I really I'm like I, I'm grateful for that opportunity because they're before they're solidified in in uh, books, and even though they they were published before in magazines, but I like the opportunity to to layer on and add on and things that I've learned, and um, I think we you know the book that I wrote, my first book, if I had an opportunity to rewrite it, it would be a different book and I appreciate that it's there as it is Um, but of course when you look back you're like I would have this is what I would have changed I mean that's the process of growth I think for every writer in this book you also reveal that you were a child the first time you thought you could be murdered you were afraid that an older boy who was molesting you might actually kill you and you were afraid to write about this while your parents were alive. Not being able to write certain things while your parents are alive is a common refrain that we see from a lot of writers. How hard was this to write about and why did you decide to include it? Well, I, 
I remember having a conversation with a female writer friend and she said to me, you know, she said, there are a lot of stories I have that I will only write when my mother is passed on, you know. And and then I realized I knew that this was one of those things that, you know, uh, about being, you know, sexually abused that I didn't want to talk about what my parents were alive because it happened when they were in the States and I was in, in Haiti. It was a, a young man who was a, a relative of my uncle's wife who moved into the, the house where we were. And so I knew it would be for them um, a, a something of incredible grief if they thought that this had affected me in any way. I think, I think that it was told to my father at some point um, that, like when it happened, I I have a vague. We never talked about it. I never talked to my parents about it. But I I I, th you know, I, it just I knew it would hurt them more to know that I, it would feel like a failing on their part that they had left me and this had happened. So that's something I I had kept to myself. And then I thought when I was writing this book, it was part of this relationship of, of mothering and now being a mother myself. And I realized it's something that makes me extraordinarily sort of almost paranoid about my daughters, you know. And so, and it's something that I have to check all the time that I am me, that they're them. and. Um, to make that separation and also then to see that through the view of what it must have meant for my mother to be in a whole different country than I was and and what it would have meant as an adult to be reminded of that that had happened and so I felt you know I just felt like I didn't want to add I knew that they they made very difficult decisions that they had to and a lot of the opportunities that are afforded to me now are a result of those decisions that they made the fact that they were left me for example is why I was able to go to school where I was able to come here and, and and have the life that I have so I didn't want to to hurt them with that I don't I mean I I it just I felt like it would they would have received it if I wrote about it especially if I shared it it was seen as a kind of indictment of them you also write about collective grief after events that caused mass casualties, such as the earthquake in your native Haiti in 2010 and about 9-11. You also talk about your personal experience of grief after the deaths of your parents. Did writing this book in any way help you with that grief? Because you mentioned that you were writing this shortly after your mother passed. Absolutely. I think it was a part of the process of my grief. Uh, people often gave me books, you know, after both my father died and my mother died, so I got a lot of poetry, I got um, copies of A Grief Observed, you know, C.S. Lewis, that book. And I think people often don't know what to say to a grieving person, especially in the moment of bereavement. You know, at funerals, you, you know, you all, you'll say, you know, please let me know what I can do and things of that nature. and and. Um, and sometimes just being there helps. Just sitting there with someone is is so is such a, a powerful, you know, comfort. So writing for me, and as well as reading, was a was a way of of dealing with my grief. It was very therapeutic going through the process, and I felt this also when I was writing uh, my memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, which was about my father and uncle dying. 
uh, my father from pulmonary fibrosis and my uncle in immigration custody. So when I was writing about them, and also when I was writing about my mother, it's as if they, they come in the room with you. So I writing about them and then sharing them with other people, sharing these stories with other people, I feel in some ways extends their lives, you know, extends the relationship that we have because here I am still talking about my mother. She has not disappeared, you know, she's still with me. So that's a very powerful um, connection that we have. What do you think your mother would think about this book? The fact that you wrote this and have shared it with so many people? I would hope that she's proud, that she would feel like it's also her book because um, I do feel like since the book has been published, it's like we've been on a journey together. And you know, the book has has a, had a surprising journey. It's a, it's a small book. It's with um, Grey Wolf, an independent publisher, and and I didn't tour it very much, but it, you know, it's nominated for National Books Critics Circle um, Award. It was long listed for an award from Penn, and you know, things have happened with it that I did not expect. And I just feel like, oh, this is like my mother's one more gift that my mother's given to me. Sort of even in extending the life of the book, and and so I would hope that she would be proud. She, she, my mother has, when things are in New York, you know, for my book, she'll she's has gone with me um, and I feel like you know the National Books Critics Circle uh, ceremonies on the 14th is the reading on the 15th and it's very interesting because the last time I was there for my um, memoir I Christopher Hitchens was also nominated <laughs> and so we get, we had a chat and then I'm going back for a book that he's quoted in like his experience of dying is quoted in so there's there's so much sort of circularity to the moment that um, I just, you know, I, I would hope that she would be proud of me and proud of the fact that I have kind of portrayed our last moments together in this book. As we talked about earlier, you include the work of so many other writers in this book as examples of beautiful writing about death. If someone were just starting out as a writer and wanted to explore this topic, is there one book you would recommend that they start with? Um, I would, my book. <laughs> of course, after your book. After my book, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm, I, I say my book because I think it has such a, just for the list and the, you know, the reference um, list alone has so many books. But um, there's so many wonderful books. It depends on, you know, if you're a teacher and I'm a teacher, um, you, there are ways, two ways you teach. You can teach by instruction, by lecturing, or you teach by example. And I think it's the same with these, um, with these books. I would certainly recommend, because it's, it's withstood the test of time, and people, I have a, I think I got maybe like 10 different copies from different people of it after both my parents passed away, com you know, the com combination of the both. It's a C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed. And what I enjoyed about that, you know, he was talking about his wife who died of cancer, and he was a Christian, and, um, you know, also was talking to God, and, and, and what does it mean? Like, that grief was so palpable on that, that I think it's, you know, it's a really good example. Audrey Lord's The Cancer Journals, where we go through this whole journey with her through her cancer, and she's a writer I just love in general um, anyway. 
And Susan Sontag, um, AIDS and metaphor, illness is metaphor, um, AIDS is metaphor, illness is metaphor, those books. And um, definitely Christopher Hitchens' um, Mortality. And that book is a very small book that began as a series of essays that he wrote uh, about while he was dying that he wrote for Vanity Fair. But um, in fiction, Sula, Toni Morrison's Sula, and then a book that encompasses everything is about death and life and everything in between is Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. You know, that's kind of like a a secular Bible of life and death of our journey on this earth. Yeah. You write that losing a parent makes you think of your own mortality because there's this sense that after you lose your parents, you're next. You just don't know when. You quote your mom, who primarily spoke Creole, and would often say, we're all carrying our coffins with us every day. Have you given any thought to how you would like to be remembered? Um, I would like to be remembered as loved. <laughs> I guess I loved. And when you have children also, it just it gets so much more specific um, in terms of how you want to remember it. It's not so much how the world so much remembers you. It's I feel like for me at least, it's how my, my children will rem- remember me and other people closest to me will remember me. Um, because I've been on that, and now I'm now on that end, and I and I know what an incredible gift it is to have a wonderful memories of someone you love to carry with you that actually become part of your your fabric. So I would I would it would be great to be remembered as being loved and having loved, and um, really that's the most important. I I know. In the broader sense, I have no control over that. The rest of it, in terms of like how my books continue or how that part of my life, but really, I feel like my biggest concern would be about how the people closest to me deal with, like, remember me. Well, I thought it was interesting the way your mom recorded these cassette tapes as. Um, remembrances I guess for you and and for your brothers about her and things that she wanted is that something that you think that you would do it seems like that would be such a hard thing even though you say your mom never said I'm dying on those tapes she had to know that her time was coming soon Mm -hmm. well I feel like I've done that part of it in my books like I feel like that's covered I don't have to do the cassettes like um, I brother I'm dying for example I feel like it's it's the memory chest of my books it talks about my family our history there's something in there for like the next generation of my family and then the other work that I've done so I feel like that part um, my children my nieces and nephews they'll have plenty to sift through in terms of figuring out like who I am through the work you know that I've the stuff that I've written and the work that I've done. So that part I feel like is okay. But um, yeah, I often think of what that must have been like for my mother, that recording of that cassette. Like, it must have been both terrifying and comforting at the same time. You know, because one of, I realized in our journey together towards the end, 
is that once I stopped fighting her when she said, you know, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to die. And once I stopped just saying, no, you're not going to die, you know, our conversations flowed better because she wasn't getting that resistance from me. And then I realized her biggest concern at some point was not so much dying because she would say that. She would say, I'm not a young mother with young children. I'm, 80, I'm almost 80 years old. Why not me? You know, people say, why me? And, and I think she still wanted to live a few more years, but I think she'd come to terms with that. The hardest thing was, and the cassette proved it in the thing, words that she left us, my, me and my brothers, was how we were going to do. And I, and I think she was mothering us through the end with the cassettes, with the lessons. It's like you hear stories of mothers who are young mothers who are dying who will pack a birthday present for their kids for every year until they're 18 of that, you know. So I think it's a similar, I think when you're a parent, you never stop parenting. And I think my mother's last words, the way she, in her own voice, in those cassettes she left us was how we have of still parenting us at, until the last moment that she could. I feel like I have to switch gears now and ask you a political question. You recently wrote an op-ed about the comments the president made about Haiti and the people of that country. What do you see as the writer's responsibility to confront dialogue that's been called racist and divisive? Well, I don't want to speak for every single writer. I think because everybody has to decide what their responsibility is. But what I have noticed, you know, is that in the time that we live in now, you know, in the in the Trump era, um, with all the, you know, outright, you know, racism being spouted, the xenophobia, the, you know, all that stuff, the anti-immigration, you know, the, the, the scapegoating and all of that, um, more and more people have to do something, you know. So you, some people, uh, demon, you know, go to demonstrations, some people write, some people volunteer. And so I've seen more involvement, whether people are writers or not. And so last night was the Academy Awards and, and someone I, I I just heard um, this morning on one you know, one of the radio shows reacting to that was saying something that I think is true. Like everybody's an activist now. We we have we and, and I think the emphasis is like the act, you know, and and in and in times before where it is possible that similar things were happening and perhaps worse things were being done behind the scenes, certainly in American policy towards Haiti and American policy towards Latin America, you know, Central America and other places, maybe these things were happening, but now they're just like in, out in the open, right? And so more and more people inevitably react. And I've heard people say that, you know, it's been good for fiction, for example. It's been good for the arts because people feel like they, they need to engage with with what's happening. Because what's what's happening in our communities, you know, like in Little Haiti, not far from where we are, we're in a very we're in a historic building where uh, people were welcomed here, you know, and the opposite is happening right now, and so. 
we all have to, you know f- we have to respond you know we respond it's very hard to be a person who is sensitive because if you're an artist you're sensitive you're an observer of the community and to not be somewhat affected by what's going on because especially in this city we all know somebody who's affected by the by by either the temporary protected status that's been revoked for Haitians and Salvadorians and or we know a young person who is um, who gets who is a DACA recipient who is in limbo right now on this very day that we're speaking, which is the official date that DACA was supposed to end. So um, it's hard not to to be like in that environment to be like, oh, I'm just an artist who is just doing art. I mean, I I wouldn't condemn or malign anybody who does it, but I think even that is a political stance, you know. Well, let's talk a little bit about your reading life now and the writers you admire. If you could have a dinner party with five other writers, mm-hmm. living or dead, who would you invite and why? Well, you know, I've been very lucky that some of the people I really love as writers, I've, I have had dinner with separately, but I would bring them all together. I'd bring them together. First of all, I would have Toni Morrison, for sure. Um, and I have had... Been, privilege to have had dinner with her um, but I would bring her with um, some women that she already knows too um, with Nikki Giovanni Sonia Sanchez Angela Davis and I guess we should have one guy <laughs> oh, James Baldwin I would bring him into I would have that I think that would be a cool dinner and I would just sit back and watch and if Zoe Neil Hurston would hover over us <laughs> too. She would, you know, that would that would be cool. What are you reading right now? Um, I am doing a a talk on the um, legacy of Thaddeus Davis, who was um, my professor at Brown. She's, um, I think, retiring from Penn, and she's an expert. Um, in African-American literature, but also particularly on the work of Nella Larson. She wrote a very fabulous biography of Nella Larson. So um, I'm rereading, after reading her book on Nella Larson, I'm rereading Nella Larson. So I'm reading Passing and Quicksand <laughs> by Nella Larson. And I'm also reading Katia Ulysses' uh, Mouth Don't Speak. It's um, set in Haiti after the earthquake, and, and Katia was uh, was a wonderful writer who I published one of her stories in um, in uh, Haiti Noir, and um, she's great. And also, I'm reading Freshwater by Akweke Emezi, which is amazing. It's it's told by it's told through the point of view of spirits who who inhabit. Um, spiritual gods, I guess, who inhabit this woman. And it's really, it's fantastic on so many levels and um, just really beautiful writing, but also very, very deep and um, phenomenal. You also mentioned that you're working on a new book right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Well, it's a collection of stories. I really am drawn to that form. I feel like Part of the appeal for me is just like that in each story you can just 
and, and like you can hold the whole thing in your head and you just inhabit a world I, I've just really loved so there are some new stories and older stories that I have just rewritten and worked on and there's one really long story that I just loved writing it was just really so much fun writing so if the title doesn't change it should be called um, everything inside is worth dying for and so that comes from one time walking around um, where I live um, sort of in the Wynwood Little Haiti area and someone had a big sign on their window that says nothing inside is worth dying for and it was a target with, <laughs> with a gun and I'd never seen that before and I thought whoa that is so intimidating and cool at the same time and so that's where the title well instead of nothing it's everything but that's where the title comes from Edwidge Dantica thank you so much for talking to us about your work today it's really been a pleasure thank you so much for having me we also want to thank the Miami Book Fair International for hosting us today and for sponsoring the show. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story. We have two copies to give away. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.